Ecclesiastes 7, verses 1 to 25. A good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of death better than the day of birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, for death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. Frustration is better than laughter, because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. It is better to heed the rebuke of a wise person than to listen to the song of fools. Like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. This too is meaningless. Extortion turns a wise person into a fool, and a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of a matter is better than its beginning, and patience is better than pride. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. Do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. Wisdom, like an inheritance, is a good thing and benefits those who see the sun. Wisdom is a shelter, as money is a shelter. But the advantage of knowledge is this. Wisdom preserves those who have it. Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? When times are happy, be happy. But when times are bad, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, no one can discover anything about their future. In this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these. The righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness. Do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Do not be over-wicked and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? It is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. Whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. Wisdom makes one wise person more powerful than ten rulers in a city. Indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous and no one who does what is right and never sins. Do not pay attention to every word people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you. For you know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I tested by wisdom, and I said, I am determined to be wise, but this was beyond me. Whatever exists is far off and most profound. Who can discover it? So I turned my mind to understand, to investigate, and to search out wisdom and the scheme of things, and to understand the stupidity of, weak, of wickedness and the madness of folly. Hi everyone, welcome to church. If you don't know me, my name is Adam and it's great to have you join us today. You know, I don't really remember the first time that I saw it, but I've never really forgotten it. I'm talking about one of the opening scenes from the animated movie, Up. If you haven't seen the movie, it's about 78-year-old balloon salesman, Carl Fredrickson. And the movie begins with this poignant four-minute scene that tells the story of Carl's life with his wife, Ellie. The scene is wordless, neither Carl nor Ellie speak, but it communicates a powerful message. It begins with a, a glimpse of their wedding day and then moves to their first home, which they renovate together, and their first jobs. Then Carl and Ellie go on a, a picnic, they race up the grassy hill, they look up into the sky and they see pictures in the clouds. 
at one point, all of the clouds turn into babies. And Ellie turns to Carl and gives him a knowing look. And then we see Carl and Ellie working on a nursery together. I mean, it's an idyllic look at young love and marriage. But as it turns out, this is not an idyllic life. The next scene is in a hospital room where Ellie is weeping into her hands as a doctor talks with them. Then at their home, Carl comforts his wife, Ellie, by reminding her of a dream they had when they were children to travel together to a place called Paradise Falls. Ellie creates a dream jar labelled Paradise Falls and they put all their spare money into it. But again, life happens. They get a flat tyre. Carl breaks his leg and a tree falls on the roof of their home. And each of these things means that the jar needs to be smashed and the money needs to be spent. Soon, Carl and Ellie begin to get grey in their hair and in a flash, they are elderly. One day, Carl remembers their uh, desire to travel to Paradise Falls. And he goes out and he buys two tickets and he takes Ellie back to the grassy hill where they went on the picnic and he intends to present the tickets to her. But on the way up the hill, Ellie collapses. And the next scene is again in a hospital room. Ellie is in a hospital bed and Carl is comforting her by holding her hand and kissing her forehead. And then we see Carl sitting alone at the front of a church with a single balloon in his hand. And then he walks back into his home holding the balloon. The house is now cold and grey and everything fades to black. It's an incredibly moving scene. I mean, it's amazing filmmaking. But more importantly, it's an accurate portrayal of our lives in this world. I mean, our lives, just like Carl and Ellie's, they are filled with both tenderness and tragedy. They are marked by both beauty and brokenness. I mean, Carl and Ellie enjoy lots of good gifts, like love and a home and sunshine and picnics. But they also endure grief and sorrow and loss. And in our lives, just like in the lives of Carl and Ellie, there are so many things that are out of our control. I mean, for Carl and Ellie, their inability to have children, the tree that falls on the roof of their home, these things are out of their control. And our lives, just like the lives of Carl and Ellie, they are brief and momentary and fleeting. They seem to go by in a flash. They are, like James says, a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. I mean, this scene from Up, it shows us what we know to be true. That our lives are brief and fleeting. They're tender and tragic. They're beautiful but broken. And there are so many things that happen that are out of our control. And it kind of leads us to ask the question, well, if this is what life is like in this world, how should we live our lives? How should we live our lives in this world that is brief, beautiful, but broken? Now, this is actually what the book of Ecclesiastes is all about. We're in a sermon series at the moment called Chasing the Wind. We're exploring the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. And we're about halfway through the book. 
So far, the teacher, the author of Ecclesiastes, he has gone on a search for meaning, for purpose, for satisfaction. And he's gone looking in all the usual places. He's looked at things like pleasure and work and wealth and even social justice. And he's found that all of these things do not ultimately deliver. They're good things, but we cannot build our lives on them. He's described them using the Hebrew word hevel, which is usually translated meaningless, but more accurately means breath, wind, vapor. He's saying so many of the things that we pursue in life, they are fleeting, they're temporary, they're elusive. They're like our breath on a a cold day. We can see it, but we can't grab onto it and it disappears quickly. This has been the message of the book so far. Today, as we come to chapter 7, yes, if you're paying attention, that means we're skipping the rest of chapter 5 and chapter 6, which we just uh, didn't have time to, to look at, but I'd encourage you to go back and to read and to study. But as we come to chapter 7, the teacher begins to draw some conclusions from his search. He, he begins to show us a way forward. Now, we won't come to his final conclusion until the end of the book, but today he begins the journey of getting there. And he begins to answer the question, if we can't find meaning in created things, if our lives are brief and uncertain, broken and beautiful, tender and tragic, if we are not in control, then how should we live our lives? What should we do? This is the question the teacher seeks to answer in this chapter. And in this chapter, we actually discover three important lessons about how to live our lives in this brief, beautiful, but broken world. If you're taking notes, the first lesson is this. It is to learn from death. As we approach life in this brief, beautiful, but broken world, we need to learn from death. Now, the reality is, And the fact is, even if we don't like to talk about it, the reality is we will all die, whether we like it or not. I mean, none of us makes it out alive. The human mortality rate is 100%. Now, in the Bible, death is consistently considered an enemy. In the beginning, in Genesis 3, death is the consequence of our sin. It's the result of our rebellion against God. We live in a world marked by death because we have turned our back on the source of life. But the good news of the Bible, the good news of the gospel, is that death does not have the final say. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came from heaven to earth to destroy and to defeat death. And this is why at the end of the Bible, in Revelation 21, we see that death is the last enemy to be destroyed. We're told when Christ comes, death shall be no more. This is our great hope. This is what we look forward to in anticipation. But in the meantime, we continue to wrestle with and rage at the reality of death. Now this, if we're honest, has been brought very close to home for us in the last few weeks with the tragic passing of Alyssa the year 12 student from Genesis Christian College who passed away in a car accident. I mean, we grieve the loss of Alyssa. We feel deeply, when we look at this, the wrongness of death. We recognize that it is an enemy, 
an enemy that we would like to see the back of. But in this passage in Ecclesiastes, the teacher gives us another perspective on death. He introduces death to us, not as enemy, but as teacher. He tells us that we can actually learn from death. That we can actually learn about life from the reality of death. This is how he makes his point in verse 1. He says, A good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of death better than the day of birth. Now, we probably agree with the first half of this verse, that it's better for us to have a good reputation than to be good-looking, that our character matters more than our clothes. We'd probably all agree with this. But what about the second half of the verse, that the day of death is better than the day of birth, that, that it's better to go to a funeral home than a maternity ward? I mean, really? Does any of us really think, well, sure, the day that I was born was good, but I'm really looking forward to the day that I die? I don't think so. Now, of course, for the Christian, the day of death really is a good day. I mean, the Apostle Paul, he wrote in Philippians 1, he said, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's better. Now, for the Christian, death is gain because it brings us into the presence of Christ. It's the day when our faith is made sight. But I don't think that's what the teacher is saying here. The teacher is saying that the day of death is better than the day of birth because it tells us more about ourselves and about our lives. I mean, when a new baby is born, we can say very little about that baby, apart from trying to guess who they look like, which is often just that, a guess. But if we fast forward to the day of that baby's death, and if they've lived a relatively long life, we can say a whole lot more about them. We can say whether they loved Jesus or not, whether they were kind or generous, whether they had time for other people, or maybe we can just say things like, well, they loved to garden, they loved the Broncos, which is difficult to do at the moment, they loved to have a good time, they worked very hard. I mean, we can say a whole lot more about that baby about that person. And so the teacher is saying the day of death is better than the day of birth because it tells us more about the life that we lived. It tells us more about our character and our reputation. And so the teacher is saying to us, if we want to navigate life in this brief, beautiful, but broken world, we should look ahead to the day of our death and we should ask ourselves, what kind of person do I want to be? What do I want to be said about me on that day? We should allow death to teach us how to live. This is why the teacher goes on to say in verses 2 to 4, he says, It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. Frustration is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. Now, the teacher's not against having a good time. He's not against feasting and partying and enjoying yourself. I mean, he has consistently and repeatedly called on us to enjoy ourselves, to eat, to drink, to find satisfaction. In fact, Solomon, who's most likely the author of Ecclesiastes, he knew how to have a good time. 
he partied harder than probably all of us put together. He's not opposed to a party. But here's what he's saying. He's saying, I learned more about life at a funeral than I did at a party. I mean, what's your attitude towards a funeral? Generally speaking, there are two groups of people at a funeral. There are those who are foolish. They just think about how unbearable it is. They just want to get out of there. They just want it to end. They just want to go to the pub. But then there are those who are wise. And they sit there and that they stare at the coffin and they realize that one day it will be their turn. So they ask themselves, am I ready? What's my life all about? What am I living for? They allow death to teach them about life. You know, I recently read a book called Struck. It's this book here. The subtitle of it is One Christian's Reflections on Encountering Death. It's written by a pastor named Russ Ramsey. And this is the opening line of the book. Russ says, When my doctor told me I was dying, I came alive. A few days before his 40th birthday, Russ was admitted to the emergency room. He was suffering the beginning of heart failure. And he required urgent open-heart surgery. And the book is Russ's reflections on his procedure, on his depression, and on his recovery. And he writes this in the introduction. He says, Affliction awakens us to things we might not have seen otherwise. I want to interrogate my affliction. What happens when a person stands at the edge of their mortality? and looks out into the eternal. What happens when a doctor tells a man he is dying? I mean, what do you do when you're confronted by death? What do you do when you look out into the eternal? Now, you could do what many people do, and that is you could distract yourself. You can never really think about death, never really ponder death, but just keep yourself busy, keep yourself entertained, keep yourself distracted. And this takes many different forms. It might just mean that you live for the weekend. Party hard, laugh often, drink lots. It might mean that that you just live in a dreamland. You always lose yourself on a Netflix binge or, or in a romance novel. Or you're always uh, living in the past, thinking about the past, or you're always fantasizing about the future. Maybe it just means that you live a life of frantic busyness. You just keep yourself busy with endless distractions and constant noise. I mean, this is the path of escapism. It's the path that so many people walk, but it's foolish. Now, I get it. I I mean, it's, it's not pleasant to think about death. But the reality is that death is not going anywhere. I mean, to avoid the reality of death, to just stick our head in the sand, it's kind of like standing on railway tracks. And you see a train coming towards you from the distance, but you think to yourself, well, that's not very pleasant. I'm just going to look at the trees and the birds. It's not going to stop the train from coming. And the teacher says, no, no, no. If we want to be wise, 
if we want to navigate life wisely in this brief, beautiful, broken world, we need to look death in the eye. We need to realize that we're all dying, we're all terminal. And so we need to allow death to teach us how to live. We need to allow death to reshape us, to reshape our priorities, our goals, our attitudes. We must live with the end in mind. Now for the believer in Jesus, for the person who has been rescued from death by Jesus, this means that we live with eternal priorities. We live for the kingdom of God. We live for what God says ultimately matters. Love for him, love for others. I love what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, though outwardly we are wasting away, we are dying, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. We live with the end in mind. We live with the eternal priorities. This is the first lesson the teacher gives us about navigating life in this brief, beautiful, but broken world. We need to learn from death. The second lesson, if you're taking notes, is this. It is we need to live with wisdom. We need to live with wisdom. Now, the Bible has a whole lot to say about wisdom. In fact, Ecclesiastes is part of the wisdom literature in the Bible. It's one of five books, along with Psalms, Proverbs, Job, and Song of Songs, that's devoted to living wisely in God's world. And like these other books, the teacher, the, the book of Ecclesiastes, praises the goodness, the virtue of wisdom. This is what the teacher says in verses 11 to 12. Wisdom, like an inheritance, is a good thing and benefits those who see the sun. Wisdom is a shelter, as money is a shelter. But the advantage of knowledge is this. Wisdom preserves those who have it. Wisdom protects you. Wisdom guides you. Again, he says this in verse 19. Wisdom makes one wise person more powerful than ten rulers in a city. And so the teacher says, pursue wisdom. Get wisdom. Live with wisdom. It will protect you. It will guide you. It will strengthen you. Now, wisdom is a pretty broad topic. And so the teacher gives us a few specific examples of what this looks like in verses 5 to 10. The first example he gives us in verses 5 to 6 has to do with our friendships, our relationships. This is what he says. He says, It is better to heed the rebuke of a wise person, the correction of a wise person, than to listen to the song of fools. Like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of of fools. This too is meaningless. Here's what the teacher is saying. He's saying it's better to have real friends who know you and love you. And because they know you and love you, they are willing to have the hard conversation with you. They are willing to confront you about certain issues. They are willing to correct you when needed. And if you're wise, you'll listen to them. 
Now, I know this isn't easy. Nobody really likes to be corrected. Well, at least I don't. But according to the teacher, this is far better than just having friends who will laugh with us, joke with us, party with us, sing with us, but can never be serious with us. Friends who become awkward or absent when life gets serious. The teacher says to have friendships like this, that are just built on laughter and joking and mucking around, they are like the crackling of thorns under the pot. In other words, they're like kindling in a fire. They burn brightly, they burn quickly, it's lots of fun, but it doesn't last and it doesn't give much heat. It won't sustain us for the long haul. Now, if we're going to navigate life well in this brief, beautiful, broken world, we need deep friendships. So do you have friends that are willing to speak into your life? Do you have friends that are willing to confront you and correct you when needed? And are you wise enough to listen to them? This is the first area of wisdom that the teacher explores. The second, in verses 7 to 10, is patience. What a great word. We love patience, don't we? This is what he says, verses 7 to 10. Extortion, or or blackmail, turns a wise person into a fool, and a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of a matter is better than its beginning. Now, anyone who's had to do a group project at uni believes that, agrees with that. The end is far better than the beginning. And patience is better than pride. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. Do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. Now these verses put together, they are simply the teacher telling us to play the long game, to be patient, to persevere. And this is so important, so necessary, because when life gets difficult, when things get hard, and they will, whether it's with our job, whether it's with our marriage, whether it's with our kids, whether it's with our home, whether it's with our friends, whatever it is, the temptation when things get hard is to take the easy way out. It's to do the easy thing rather than the right thing. It's to make a dodgy deal or it's to ignore a tough conversation. It's to walk away and give up. It's to get angry and throw our weight around, to try and manipulate the situation with fear. Or, the teacher says, it's just to dream about the past when things were better. Just to think about the good old days. If only we could go back to the good old days. Now, the problem with this is that when life gets difficult and when things get hard, if we only ever look back to the past or if we only ever look around for the easy way out, it means we're not looking at the present We're not looking at what God is doing in the present. We're not looking at God's presence with us in the present. It means that we've forgotten God. I mean, are you always looking over the fence? Are you always looking back to the past? Are you always looking around for an escape route? It's not wise and it's not honoring to God. If we're going to live wisely in this brief, beautiful, but broken world, we will need patience and we will need perseverance. We will need faith to believe that God is at work in our present, even when it's difficult. 
I think the perfect example of this is 2020. What a year. I mean, there have been so many things that are going on, and it's tempting to just think, man, if only we could go back to the way things used to be. Or if only this would end. But if we think that way, we forget that God is with us. God is present in the midst of all that is going on. And God might have, have even more for us in the present than we could ever ask, think, or imagine. Let's not forget God. Let's live with wisdom. The teacher is saying to us today, if we want to live wisely in this brief, beautiful, broken world, we need to learn from death. We need to live with the end in mind. And we need to live with wisdom. Thirdly, finally, and I would say most importantly, the teacher's third lesson is this. We need to lean on God. We need to lean on God. Now, the astonishing thing about this passage, it's not really that the teacher calls on us to live with wisdom. The Bible does this all the time. No, the astonishing thing about this passage is what the teacher adds about wisdom. He has something else to say that is surprising. He says, yes, wisdom will help you navigate life in this world. Pursue wisdom, get wisdom, live with wisdom. But you also need to understand that even wisdom has its limits. Even wisdom won't give you or tell you everything you need to know. It's what he says, verses 23 to 24. He says, all this I tested by wisdom and I said, I am determined to be wise. But this was beyond me. Whatever exists is far off and most profound. Who can discover it? Now here's what he's saying. He is saying wisdom will only take you so far. Even if you live with wisdom in this world, it won't solve all your problems. It won't fix all your issues. I mean, you can keep all the rules. You can do all the right things. You can make good decisions. You can be sensible with your money. You can be kind to others. You can keep your nose clean. You can live with wisdom. But at the end of the day, even wisdom won't give you the ultimate answers. Even wisdom won't stop accidents or tragedies. It won't stop a heart attack or cancer. It won't prevent death or decay. It won't give you control. It won't solve everything. And if you've lived long enough in this world, you know this to be true. You know that there are limits to our knowledge and limits to our power. This is why the teacher says to us in verse 13 and 14, he says, Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, no one can discover anything about their future. The teacher is saying, you are not in control. You cannot straighten out what God has made crooked. No matter how much you know, no matter how hard you try, you cannot fix all your problems. You cannot escape your limitations. You cannot avoid the reality of death. You do not have the power to edit your life as you see fit. And not only that, you do not even know and you cannot control the future. Now, we like to think that we know how the future is going to work out. We kind of assume that if we do good things, well, then good things will happen to us. 
or if someone does bad things, well, then bad things should happen to them. But that's just not how life works. I mean, righteous people, good people, they die young all the time. And then evil people can live long and prosperous lives. We'll talk more about this next week, but this is what the teacher says in verse 15. He says, In this meaningless life of mine, I've seen both of these, the righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness. See, the teacher is telling us we are not in control. We cannot build our lives. We cannot build our future like we build our homes. We cannot build it to our exact specifications. We don't have that power. So the question is, what should we do? How should we live our lives? And the answer is to trust in God. To lean on God. Whether life is good or bad, whether things are crooked or straight, put your lives and your future in His hands. Because He is in control. He does rule over the good times and the bad times. And the amazing, incredible, unfolding answer of the Bible is that we can confidently place our lives in God's hands because we are placing ourselves in scarred hands. We are placing ourselves in hands that were nailed to the cross for you and for me, for our salvation, for our eternal life. I mean, these hands, they are not unfamiliar with loss and pain. They are hands that understand what life is like in this brief, beautiful, but broken world. But they're also hands that are powerful enough to do something about it, to rescue us from brokenness and death, to work all things good and bad together for our good. And this is exactly what will happen one day. When Christ returns, God will straighten all that is crooked, God will put an end to bad times. God will bring all evil to account. And this is why God's judgment is good news. But we have to recognize that it includes us. It includes those who have ignored or disobeyed God, which is all of us. We read in verse 20, Indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. We've all turned away from God. But the incredible message of the Bible is that God has turned towards us in Jesus. Jesus has come from heaven to earth to rescue us, to redeem us, to heal us. To go to the cross to pay the penalty of our sin and to rise again to defeat our great enemy, death. So that we can say along with the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so as I close, I want to take us back to Russ Ramsey, to the pastor who experienced heart failure and wrote the book about his experience. Now, I told you how the book begins, and now I want to share with you how it ends. This is what Russ writes. He says, This is what my hope looks like. I believe the day will come when the maker of heaven and earth will scoop me up. 
I will rise up and ascend to heights of a glory unknown, though thoroughly familiar. All of my infirmities will be removed and my sorrows comforted. All of my anger, impatience, fear, pride, greed, envy and lust will fall off like dragon scales. But I will neither tire nor fall. I will pass through a great gathering of saints, a cloud of witnesses, each shaped in some way by the collision of affliction and faith. I will see the flawed heroes I have known only through the pages of Scripture. I will see countless others I have loved who will have gone on before me. I wonder what that will be like. Here is what I do know. I will be at peace in the presence of my God, who raised from the dead his son, Jesus Christ, whose blood bought my freedom, whose triumph over the grave guaranteed my healing, and in whose name I have eternal life. With clear eyes, I will see the author and perfecter of my faith, seated at the right hand of the Father, robed in the authority I struggled to accept, in the power I failed to trust, in the wisdom I could not understand, and in the beauty I was unable to imagine. He will receive me with joy, the joy for which he endured the cross and its shame. My healer, my shepherd, my King, my God. And if your faith is in Jesus, this is your hope too. This is your hope in the midst of this brief, beautiful, but broken world. This world which will one day be made perfect like you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your abundant goodness to us through Jesus. We don't deserve it, and yet you have freely done it for us. Lord, we admit that sometimes we become confused and disoriented by the, the pain and the brokenness of life in this world. Lord, help us to fix our eyes on you and what you've done for us. Help us to fix our eyes on that day when sin and death and suffering and pain will be no more. You are our one safe place. You are our only certain refuge. And it's into your scarred and loving and wise and sovereign hands that we place our lives and our church for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for this closing blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.